Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Greetings of peace worldwide. Wherever you may be in the cosmos, I pray you're in a blessed state. This is Baraka Blue, and you're tuned in to Path and Present Podcast. This episode of the podcast is with Dr. Ali Hussein. Uh, Ali is someone who recently finished his PhD dissertation, and his focus was looking at uh, Jesus within the tradition of Sufism, particularly in the thought of Sheikh Al-Akbar ibn Al-Arabi, and that is the topic that we get into today. Um, So yes, I hope you enjoy it, and we'll also put some links so you can check out Ali's writings and other works as well. We did a previous podcast with him, uh, a couple years ago now, I guess, uh, focusing on, uh, you know, art, creativity, and spirituality. So you might want to go back in the archives and check that one out as well, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Uh, I just want to thank everybody who's been supporting Patreon, uh, Path and Present on Patreon. We have a Patreon page which allows people to support with as little as a dollar a month. And that helps us keep this going. As you might imagine, there's some costs involved in this. And we are ad-free at this point. And we are just doing it for out of a labor of love. But we also uh, appreciate that. That allows us to continue to do it and to do it more consistently. So I want to send a shout out to everybody who has been supporting us. And uh, say thank you because... All these conversations are really due to your support. And if you are somebody who would like to support or like to uh, increase your support, you can check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash path and present. And the link is uh, wherever you're listening to this. You should be able to find the link as well. So, yeah, check it out. Um, And then secondarily, uh, if you want to support in other ways, uh, a good way to support is just by sharing it with your people, anyone who you think might be interested, word of mouth. And then on iTunes, if you rate and comment on the podcast, it also helps it grow and um, boost it in the algorithm so more people can see it. So yeah, um, and I hope you've enjoyed the previous episodes. Um, it's been really nice. The last three episodes, we had Amir Suleiman, we had... Uh, Abdullah Rothman talking about Islamic psychology, and then we had Hakim Archuleta recounting his <laughs> his uh, divine happenings and events and um, his journey. So yeah, it's all love and it's all light. Um, I've been in Seattle for the last six weeks. Um, I've been working with an organization called Wasat, and Wasat is an organization that does a lot of things around art, spirituality, and service. And um, they hired me at the beginning of the year to be their creative director. So it's been a beautiful thing um, being back in Seattle, my hometown, and uh, just being involved with this project. It's a beautiful project. You could check it out. org is the website. And you could check out Wasit on social media as well. And uh, 
yeah, been doing programs with Amir Suleiman, Imam Dawood Yassin, Ramis Kent, Hisham Mahmoud, and then I did a series of programs uh, over these six weeks called Knowledge of Self, where we were looking at uh, the spiritual path and the understanding of the self, reflecting on the saying of Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, man arafa nafsahu faqad arafa rabbuhu. Whoever knows himself, indeed, they will know their Lord, their Creator. And uh, we've been taking primarily from the alchemy of happiness of Imam al-Ghazali, but also bringing in some other works uh, of the great sages. So we did that, we started before Ramadan and we went through Ramadan. And uh, we've been going, going until the end of June as well. Uh, every Wednesday at Wasad in Seattle. So if you're in Seattle, slide on through. And if not, uh, m- most of those events are live streamed on Wasat, uh Facebook. W-A-S-A-T. Yep. So I got some travels coming up. I'll be coming to the Middle East. Um, and uh, I don't have all the dates right now. So... In the next podcast, I'll announce those. All right, y'all. Peace. So I guess the place to start is to say congratulations on finishing and defending your dissertation. MashaAllah, I know you've been working on this for many years. So why don't you uh, just introduce the topic of your dissertation and your research um, for our listeners? Sure. So, So I initially began sort of my dissertation uh, transitioning from my master's degree in computer science, which I did before my PhD, where I was interested in the issue of intelligence mm. and from a humanist perspective, not like a, uh, like a programming perspective. And I found Ibn Arabi to be sort of um, an excess for that as he is for almost anything else that you really want to talk about. Um, and then I began transitioning sort of from the issue of intelligence to pedagogy and this sort of embodied transmission of knowledge uh, through close proximity, which is known in Tasawwuf as suhbah, or companionship, direct companionship, something that you're very familiar with. Um, and then sort of I, at the periphery, I was also studying contemporary theory, like contemporary philosophy, and studying about the sort of the, the, the openness of language Um, and the meaning that it contains. So I kept, that was sort of in the back of my mind and I was trying to find a topic which would in a way synthesize all of these things that I've been interested in. And uh, Jesus, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, sort of appeared to me as the perfect embodiment, uh, pun intended, of all of these sort of uh, uh, trends. On the one hand, um, uh, you know, in terms of intelligence, Jesus, Sayyidina Isa a.s. represents divine speech, divine knowledge, as logos. Uh, in terms of pedagogy, he is the word made flesh, uh, the embodiment of the divine word. So there is a conveyance of knowledge. 
And then the pedagogy I sort of discovered uh, through Ibn Arabi's writings. So the topic of the dissertation ended up being, the title of the dissertation, should I say, is uh, Sainthood Between the Ineffable and Social Practice, Jesus Christ in the Writings of Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi and Later Sufism. So I, I guess I could give a brief overview of sort of the chapter organization, which would sure, sort sure. of describe yeah. well what I'm talking about. So in the first chapter, I, I give the introduction, um, basically the topic, and I give a brief overview of the literature that has been done on this topic. And then I, uh, that's chapter two. It's completely devoted to literature review. Chapter three is where I focus on Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, Jesus in the Futuhat. Um, and there is approximately 150 mentions of Sayyidina Isa in the Futuhat. So there was, it's really impossible to sort of cover that in a single chapter. So I just focus on like the first, you know, quarter of the book. Um, and I categorize it in four categories in terms of Sayyidina Isa in the Futuhat. One being his body, physiology and kinship. Um, and then uh, the Mi'raj narratives. Uh, there are a couple really important Mi'raj narratives in the Futuhat where Sheikh Al-Akbar talks about his own Mi'raj, or his own ascension, and he meets Sayyidina Isa in a journey that is very much the journey of the Prophet Sallallahu in his own Mi'raj, where he meets Sayyidina Isa and Sayyidina Yahya in the second heaven. Um, and then the third category is Wilaya, sainthood. Um, and then the fourth is the esoteric aspects of Sharia. Um, and then chapter four, I transitioned to Khusus al-Hikam, where I actually, alhamdulillah, I managed to discuss all the mentions of Sayyidina Isa and Khusus al-Hikam, including his own chapter, which is called Fas Hikman Nabawiyya Fi Kalima Isawiyya, the bezel of a prophetic wisdom in a Christic word. And then there are three other mentions in the rest of the book. And then basically after that, chapter five, I focus on Sayyidina Isa and Sheikh Al-Akbar in the writings of uh, Sidi Abdul Aziz al-Dabbagh and Sidi Ahmed Tijani, uh, two North African Sufis. And then chapter six is basically the conclusion. MashaAllah. Yeah, so that's obviously a lot to cover and fascinating topic. And... Um, Inshallah, we could at least get a, get a little bit of that and focus on maybe some aspects of that. Sure. Um, I think, you know, uh, it, what's amazing is still to this day, many people outside of the Islamic tradition in the uh, Christian or post-Christian West still find themselves very surprised at the centrality of Jesus and what yes. he means to the Islamic tradition. Yes. And I think it's beautiful when you look at the Sufi tradition uh, at this emphasis that each prophet uh, represents a specific lens or a specific uh, uh, gemstone, a specific, mm -hmm. you know, um, facet, if you will, of, yeah. uh, of, a, of reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rumi has a lot of beautiful lines. One of the ones that I always quote, you know, he mentions that, you know, Jesus becomes kind of the archetype of the human spirit because in the Quran, he is called Ruh Allah, which mm -hmm. is really an amazing, uh, the spirit of God. Of course, mm -hmm. we, we might translate his spirit from God. Uh, but I mean, that there it is, the spirit of yes. God, a spirit of God. Yes. And so Jesus becomes the archetype of human 
potentiality because we all have Ruh Allah. We all have a spirit from God. That is our true inherent nature, our potential that we can actualize. And so Jesus uh, is mentioned in the Masnavi many times, of course, as are the other prophets. But one of the, the beautiful examples, which is very lighthearted, but yet very profound, if you understand the symbolism, as is much of Rumi's discourse. Yes. He talks about Jesus being upon his donkey riding through the marketplace and Jesus is drunk on God and the donkey is drunk on barley. And of course, this is the human being because we have a Jesus nature. We have a ruh, a spirit, a pure spirit that is from the divine speech, nafas ar-Rahman, and is from the realm of pure spirits witnessing the divine presence. But yet we're in this world with our with our donkey, you know, yes. our dumb ass nature, yes. <laughs> you know? And so, yes. and the, the, the reality is that the spirit is only content with spiritual matters, with, with the divine. And mm-hmm. that is what it, its intoxication is. And the donkey nature, that lower human nature, it, it is contended with the lowest of the low. So barley being the cheapest of the grains, you know, what you feed the animals. And of course, symbolically, the donkey represents the nafsa lamara bisu, that lower self, the ego nature, if you will. And the barley represents all the things that the ego chases in this world from, you know, wealth and fame and notoriety and, uh, you know, you know uh, value in the eyes of men for worldly matters. Yes. And so I think it's really profound what he's saying because he's saying, He's not saying don't get drunk. He's just saying upgrade your intoxicants. Yes, right? exactly. And, and so that's, that's a profound teaching. And that's one reason that I love Maulana Rumi is because he, he gets at these deeper realities, which you may find in, in Ibn al-Arabi and other of the great yes. metaphysicians, but he does it in almost a playful way. They say about mm-hmm. Maulana Rumi that he wore his scholarship lightly. In yes. fact, he has even some kind of lewd and crude uh, yes, he does. You know, think passages as well because he was really trying to speak to the human soul at every level, not just <laughs> great scholars and things. And I think that's one thing I love about him. And I'm sure you'd have some reflections on that. But I'd also love for you maybe just to – you mentioned the Fusus al-Hikam and you mentioned the Futuhat al-Makiyah, which are the two uh, you know, most popular works of – Ibn al-Arabi. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if maybe you could introduce those two works and what they mean mm-hmm. and what they, you know, the different roles Ibn al-Arabi uh, wrote them for and then how they were received and their role throughout Islamic civilization. And then maybe once introducing that, you could talk a little bit about the treatment of Jesus in each. I know those are those are deep topics, but at least maybe just introduce the Fusus and the, the chapter arrangement, etc. Sure thing. So I think the best way to introduce the Futuhat is to say what Chidik said about them in um, either the Sufi Path of Knowledge or Self-Disclosure of God, one of these two works. He said, you know, we know that Ibn Arabi wrote the Futuhat while traveling in the second part of his life. Um, And when you look at the organization of the Futuhat, the 6,000 pages, eight volumes, um, that is neither a philosophical work nor a complete stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. There is an attempt, like you mentioned about Maulana Rumi, Ibn Arabi so masterfully through prose destabilizes the expectation of the reader. 
Mm. But yet at the same time, there is this kind of like a spirit of coherence where the chapters melt together and one finds themselves when they're trying to describe what Ibn Arabi is talking about, they can't help but talk about all of it all at once. Um, so you begin talking about knowledge and epistemology and all of a sudden you find yourself transitioning to theology and asma and sifat. And then immediately you find yourself transitioning to, to, to love um, and poetry and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, so Chidik says, once we put all of these pieces together, we can't help but think and believe that this man was inspired by God. There is just no other explanation for how um, he is able to talk about all of these different things in such a coherent way and yet in a way that is so creative. Mm -hmm. So it's 560 chapters. It's an encyclopedic work, uh, the Futuhat al-Makiyya, that in many ways, if I were to describe it, I mean, I think it's like, the metaphysical version of Ihya Ulum al-Din. Ihya Ulum al-Din sort of describes mu'amalat, ibadat, munjiyat, and muhlikat, the vices, the, uh, the, those things that are rewarded for, acts of worship, and dealings. But he describes them in a kind of a moral, ethical way that sort of intimates in its structure the physical world. Mm-hmm. Ibn Arabi is trying to convey, not only through the content of what he's talking about, but through the actual organization of the work and through his style of writing, the unexpected nature of the spirit. So that's why you'll find him talking about something and then immediately transitioning to something else, because that's actually what happens in the spiritual world. So in many ways, where Imam Ghazali stops with the Ihya, which he mentions it in the introduction that I'm not going to talk about Ayman Mukashifa, the science of unveiling. This is exactly where Sheikh Al-Akbar begins. Wow. And the Futuhat is precisely this sort of encyclopedic, it's kind of like a guide. If you needed a guide through an ascension, through the spiritual realm, um, and to keep one foot still in the physical realm to see how the physical world around you translates into a spiritual reality, the Ihya is your guide. Mm-hmm. And that's not a coincidence because as Chidik also mentions in um, uh, Death and Imagination, in one of his articles, he said, look, what Ibn Arabi did is basically prepare the world for the apocalypse. <laughs> wow. That this universe is transitioning to Akhirah. And as it transitions for Akhirah, the gaze of the world becomes like iron. The veils are lifted. And the people of the world, they're going to see things that they simply cannot explain through their mind. And Ibn Arabi was sent by God to help the universe transition. So the Futuhat is basically that. I mean, I, I don't think there is any other way really to describe it. Michel Shotkevich, he wrote a book called Ocean Without Shore. Mm-hmm. Um, where he describes the structure of the Futuhat and he correlates it to the structure of the Qur'an. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we were to look at what Ibn Arabi... And by the way, I mean, this type of writing had existed before Sheikh Al-Akbar. For example, the Rasail Ikhwan Ahl al-Safa, the letters of the Brethren of Purity, mm-hmm. is sort of like the canonical archetype of this type of writing, mm-hmm. right? Where you 
have people talking about like anecdotes from Indian lore and like, you know, Kalila wa Dumna, and then you have this sort of idea of the levels of existence and metaphysics and the spiritual world, punishment, eschatology, and all of that. It's that eclectic type of writing brought together in an encyclopedia. That's sort of what people in the past did. I mean, that's really what you try to do. You try to view the entire universe in a unity. Mm-hmm. And it's a singular experience, as Sheikh Akbar himself describes it. Um, the Futuhat was born uh, when he was uh, in Mecca. He was doing the, the he was doing Tawaf around the Kaaba, and he says, "I saw uh, uh, what we would translate as a fleeting youth, al uh, al Fa'it." Um, and this youth, he describes him as the you know the living dead, the simple composite, the silent speaker. Um, and essentially what he is saying is he witnessed the divine essence um, embodied in the form of a youth. And he asked this youth to reveal himself to Ibn Arabi. He asked him to receive some kind of knowledge. And the youth revealed himself and Ibn Arabi fell. He, he swooned. He was completely annihilated. And when he was born, when he woke up again, he said that I was given a singular meaning. And that singular meaning gave the infinite forms of the Futuhat. Um, so essentially, it's a creative experience. Mm. It's a creative experience of being given a singular meaning that just keeps giving forms and ideas and, and notions and writings to no end. That's essentially the Futuhat. The Fusus, in many ways, is a summary of the Futuhat. But Sheikh Al-Akbar is trying to do something different with it. And I think you touched upon a lot of those points and a lot of the points that I actually discuss in the dissertation. Um, what occurred to me is that Sheikh Al-Akbar, through the organization of the Fusuls, he's representing prophets as bezels on a ring stone. And essentially, those as you mentioned, the key word is archetype, that each of these prophets represents an archetype. And the reality that they represent is actually the light of the Prophet So what becomes clear is that Sheikh Al-Akbar is actually making a very powerful statement. As the Quran was revealed in 23 years, the Prophet was revealed in a procession of prophets, culminating in the physical appearance of the Prophet which means that each one of these stages of the Prophets is unique and necessary. So the world, the universe, simply cannot withstand the weight of the Prophet appearing all at once in his physical body, encompassing all the divine names, encompassing the, 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 the most perfect manifestations of God. So through Sayyidina Adam السلام, appears the form, the perfection of the form of the Prophet which is why Shaykh al-Akbar in the, the first chapter talks about the perfection of the human form in Sayyidina Adam. And then through Sayyidina Idris uh, is revealed the, the, uh, the manifestation of knowledge, of Ali. And then through Sayyidina Musa appears the manifestation of Jalal, of majesty and of the law. So the question becomes for the dissertation is what was revealed through Sayyidina Isa? Because it's not only what was revealed through Sayyidina Isa is 
the fact that Sayyidina Isa immediately precedes the Prophet which means it is the penultimate stage, the most important uh, crucial component that's needed right before the appearance of the Prophet and that is the Word made flesh. This ability of the human body to contain within itself the infinitude of divine speech is precisely what appears to Sayyidina Isa. And what you mentioned about, you know, people of other faiths being surprised at the centrality of Jesus in Islam, I would say Muslims are surprised mm -hmm. at the centrality of Jesus in Tasawwuf and this traditional, traditional Tasawwuf. Because, and if you, if you don't mind, I would like to just elaborate a little bit about this archetypal notion of Sayyidina Isa. Um, especially what you mentioned about the spirit, that Sayyidina Isa represents the spirit. This is really like one of the major findings of the dissertation that Sheikh al-Akbar is interested in a historical figure of Sayyidina Isa. Yes, he precedes the Prophet Sallallahu and he immediately um, follows the Prophet Sallallahu as the second coming, as the Messiah. But... Sheikh al-Akbar is also interested in representing Sayyidina Isa as a recurring appearance in various aspects of the universe. For example, the universe in its entirety, all of creation, is a barzakh between absolute existence, absolute being of God, and between absolute non-existence. Right. It's so, a liminal space. It's a threshold. It's, it's neither one nor the other, but it's somehow the, the meeting place of them. The meeting place between them, and that's exactly what Sayyidina Isa is in his body. He's a meeting place between the realm of bodies and spirits. Mm. Sheikh al-Akbar also describes the human soul as a barzakh, as Isawi, mm. as like a nutfa Isawiya, as a, as a Christic subtlety of the human being. Why? Because it's also a child born, this is his exact words, he says the soul is a child born between the marriage uh, between the body and the spirit. Mm -hmm. And the spirit is the father and the body is the mother. Which means that the body, the human body, is Maryam-esque. Mm. It's a Mary-esque uh, subtlety. And the human spirit is a Gabriel-esque um, subtlety. Um, and then he talks about all sorts of other things. Like, for example, medicine. He talks about medicine uh, residing at the bottom of a flask, that the process through, this, through which the medicine uh, actually resides at the bottom of the flask is a Christic process. So, in one instance, Sheikh al-Akbar is saying that if you look throughout the universe, there is a whole bunch of um, Christic uh, tajalliyat. But actually, if you invert it, I think we have a much more profound... Um, a much more profound uh, 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 idea that Sayyidina Isa himself um, is sort of, instead of saying the universe is Isawi, you're saying that the Sayyidina Isa himself is sort of the birth of all of these things that are happening in the universe. Mm. Mm. Right? Um, and, I mean, there is much more we can go into, but I think in terms of the Futuhat and the Fusuls and how Sayyidina Isa sort of fits into that, that's, I think that's a good overview. 
So, yeah, I'd love to hear, and we should try our best. I know a lot of these terms are technical and a lot of them are Arabic, but just for, for the listeners that aren't as fluent in the Arabic, we should try our best to, to use the Arabic, but then also kind of explore those, what yeah. English equivalent. I know a lot of these words are actually nearly impossible to translate, of but course. we should do our best. Um, so I'm curious in, in kind of exploring the things that you just mentioned more in depth. And I'd like to talk about the Fusus because I know the Fusus was seen as, um, talked about by Ibn al-Arabi as being a special book. It was supposed to be carried separately from other books and bound mm -hmm. a specific way. And it's obviously, you know, much, much shorter than the Futuhat al-Makiyyah. So it is, in a sense, the abridgment or the, the khalasa, the essence, yes. you yes. could even see it. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to just explore more um, what, what he says specifically about Jesus in that chapter. And uh, maybe just also talking about interesting remarks that he, he may say of other prophets. So there are... There is really three main things which, you know, Sheikh Al-Akbar sort of revisits mm. um, in all the works about Sayyidina Isa. One being his physiology. So he's very interested in the uniqueness of the birth of Sayyidina Isa. And for Sheikh Al-Akbar, that has repercussions on how he performed miracles. Mm. So, for example, he says, um, turning the other cheek. Um, is something that Sayyidina Isa received from his mother. Mm. Resurrecting the dead is something he received from, and in the Fulsus he described it as Sayyidina Jibreel. Elsewhere he actually described Sayyidina Jibreel as his father. He describes Sayyidina Jibreel as Sayyidina Isa, as, as, as Jesus' father. Um, and then he, he says, and then he makes these remarks which are really profound. He says, look, the only reason that Sayyidina Isa was able to resurrect the dead in a human form is because that's the way that Sayyidina Jibreel appeared. That's the form he appeared in when he initiated this process of breathing the word into Mary. Had Jibreel alayhi salam appeared in any other form, an animal form, a plant form, his original angelic form, Sayyidina Isa would not be able to perform this miracle unless he changed his form to also that original form of, of Sayyidina Jibreel. Now, this might seem like a, a technical detail, but I think what Sheikh al-Akbar is, is, is the case he's making here is, um, and you mentioned this regarding Maulana Rumi, that he's not telling us don't get drunk, but get drunk on something higher. Sheikh al-Akbar destabilizes our modern understanding of theology. Um, in modern theology, we perceive the spiritual world, even though we don't like to state that outright, we like to think of it as separate from the physical world. Sheikh mm -hmm. al-Akbar continuously um, tries to challenge that notion. He is not moving the physical world down and trying to take you up to the spiritual world. He's actually trying to take you and the physical world up to the spiritual world. So here he is making a really powerful connection 
between the physical appearance, the physical birth of Jesus, and the ramifications that has on miracle performance, which comes from the spiritual world. Hmm. Which means that the spirit and the body are married, which he also makes that. That they cannot be separated into two different worlds or two different notions that have no interaction with one another. In another place, in the Futuhat, he actually makes the opposite connection. And this is really beautiful. This is like a really uh, almost comical. We'd never expect somebody um, to talk about fiqh in this way. So Sheikh Al-Akbar is talking about funeral procession. And he says, if you are in a funeral procession, um, it is not, it is makruh. It is not recommended or detestable for you to, for anybody in the funeral procession to ride an animal, like a donkey or a horse. Why? Because angels are accompanying the procession and it's disrespectful to the angels. So already he is using a spiritual reality to make a fiqhi ruling, mm -hmm. right? Which means that you not riding an animal is actually dependent on those angels that are attending the procession. And then he says, but if there is wailing and crying and screaming in the procession, then know that the angels have left mm -hmm. because they never stay around people who are wailing or screaming. Mm -hmm. So since the angels have left, there is no harm in you riding an animal. Mm. So for him, there is no division between the spiritual world and the physical world. There are complete, they're on a continuum. And this is exactly what Isa represents. He represents this kind of meeting between the physical world and the spiritual world where you can immediately sort of transition from one to the other. So that's sort of the sense in which he discusses the physical um, physiology of Jesus, and he transitions from that into miracle performance, which means he's talking about awliya, saints. Um, and here he represents Abu Yazid al-Bustami as a, a, a specifically Isawi saint, and he uses as proof of that the ability of Abu Yazid al-Bustami to resurrect the dead. So he says Abu Yazid al-Bustami once stepped on an ant, by mistake and he killed it and then he uh, blew his breath on the ant and it, it was resurrected alive once again and then he makes the point that uh, the only way Abu Yazid al-Bussani is able to do this is if he understood how Sayyidina Isa resurrected the dead dhawqan and he makes this point clear that this is a knowledge of taste this is not a knowledge of rationality this is not a knowledge of the mind. This is a knowledge of taste, which again is a barzakhi or a liminal type of understanding, right? Because the rational mind is bounded to the physical world and the spiritual world is bound to the heart, though spiritual taste is sort of the meeting in between mm -hmm. because it still has to do with the body. I mean, that's why the word though, um, we usually taste with our tongue. And it's used because of its relationship to the body, but it's a spiritual taste. Then he actually um, transitions completely in this chapter about Sayyidina Isa to talking about the incident where the Prophet Sallallahu uh, was standing up in prayer at night, repeating the verse 
which Sayyidina Isa will say at the Day of Judgment, um, where Sayyidina Isa is basically asking God to forgive his people. Um, and he says, if I, if I mentioned it, that, you know, if I, were to, if I told them that I am God or my mother is God, then you would have known it. I did not say except that which you have told me. And uh, if you forgive them, they are your servants. And or if you punish them, they are your servants. And if you forgive them, then you are the most wise <clears throat> and the most exalted. And here, Sheikh Al-Akbar takes us through such a twisty journey um, that in one way is so unexpected, but in another way, it's so emblematic of who he is. First of all, um, he says that in a sense, he asks the question, who was it that mentioned, that stated this verse first? The Prophet Sallallahu or Sayyidina Isa? And he says, look, the, Sayyidina Isa Alayhi Salam would not have the power to respond back to God had the Prophet Sallallahu not prayed in this verse and recited it all night long. So this is like, this is like one of those you know, I don't, I don't know if you remember Lost, the TV show Lost, mm -hmm. where there is things that happen in the future that are actually dependent on the past and the people go back in the past and they change the future. Mm -hmm. This is essentially what he's doing here. That the Quran came to the Prophet ﷺ, it was revealed to him, and in there it is saying that Sayyidina Isa is the original speaker of this address, that he's going to say this to God on the Day of Judgment. Mm -hmm. But then the Prophet ﷺ, recites and repeats this verse in his nightly prayer. And Shaykh al-Akbar is saying, no, that's the original recitation of the Prophet Sallallahu reciting it in his nightly prayer. It is because he recited it that Sayyidina Isa is going to get the power to actually make this address on the Day of Judgment. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, has to do with the relationship between the Qur'an and the Prophet Sallallahu um, That Well, we mentioned that, that Shaykh al-Akbar He's saying, just as the Qur'an was revealed in 23 years, the Prophet ﷺ was revealed. Sayyidina Aisha, of course, in the famous Athar, in the famous narration, she says the Prophet ﷺ was a walking Qur'an. But, Shaykh al-Akbar, I believe, is making a more profound even point, or building, sorry, building on what Sayyidina Aisha says. He's saying, you can say that the Prophet ﷺ is the walking Qur'an, but what if we say the Qur'an is a textual version of the Prophet Then the Prophet is actually the original Quran right. and written words that we are reciting are merely describing him. Mm. They're describing his Jamal, his beauty. They're describing his Jalal. They're describing what is happening to him. They're describing his conversation with Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala, And that is sort of the thread that runs throughout the the um the the fusuls. in this specific case regarding this verse Sheikh al-akbar says look since the prophet ﷺ made recited this dua in prayer in nightly prayer he is asking allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive his ummah which actually includes not only muslims it includes all of creation in turn what sayyidina isa is really meaning when he recites these verses is that you appear to them, you appear to my people in a specific form and they have worshipped you 
according to what you appear to them. So even though it might not be uh, the perfect Tawheed, it is still your manifestation. It is still your theophany. Um, and I mean, there are many other things that Sheikh Al-Akbar goes into, but I think this gist of what he is doing there um, is sort of encapsulates this intimate relationship between Sayyidina Isa, the Prophet and the Quran. There are three other mentions, um, and I'll just elaborate upon them. I think they're in the chapter on Sayyidina Dawood, the chapter on Sayyidina Yahya, and the chapter on Sayyidina Harun. And one important thing that I'll think I mentioned from that from those instances is that Sheikh al-Akbar presents Sayyidina Isa. I mean, the reason that Sayyidina Isa is important for Sheikh al-Akbar, so he, he's liminal in his body, but he's also liminal in terms of his appearance on earth. He's a historical prophet in the past and an eschatological or a future messiah. Now, Sheikh al-Akbar says that there cannot be a prophet after the Prophet which is part of Islamic creed which means that Sayyidina Isa is not going to return as a prophet. He's going to return as a saint, as a wali, as a Muslim saint, and a Muhammadan follower. Now, what is the importance of that? It's not just a, it's not just a, like a, a small detail. He actually is saying that because of these dual roles, that you have someone like Sayyidina Isa who served his role as a prophet, and he's also tapping into the realm of wilaya, he facilitates, he allows Muslim saints to inherit something from prophethood. And the way that awliyaullah do that, uh, Shaykh al-Akbar says, he says, when Sayyidina Isa returns, he cannot change the sharia because he is not a prophet in that capacity at the time. He could alter sharia during his first coming. But during his second coming, he's no longer a prophet, he is a saint. But what he will do alongside Imam Mahdi السلام, is completely suspend ijtihad. And the way he is going to be able to do that is through kash. So Sheikh Al Akbar says that, or unveiling, sorry, kash unveiling. Mm -hmm. So he says that the legislative power of saints occurs through their unveiling. They have spiritual authority, in which case they gain this authority through the example of Sayyidina Isa, through the example of Jesus. This is something that we really don't have in any other writing. I mean, even with Sidi Ahmed Tijani and Sidi Abdul Aziz Dabbagh, when I looked at what they say about Sayyidina Isa and what they say about Sheikh Al-Akbar, um, this type of vision of, Sheikh, of, of Sayyidina Isa that is present in Sheikh Al-Akbar's writings is unmatched. In, in many, I mean, in terms of content and context and, and, and in many other ways. MashaAllah. Yeah, there's a lot of streams to take up there. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of them that's really interesting to me is this idea, we talk of dhawq, uh, tasting literally, but really a kind of uh, almost a kind of mystical, creative intuition, direct knowledge. It's mm -hmm. it's a type of revealed knowledge, really. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then cash, which is a related term, unveiling. It's, it's also an ability to know things kind of beyond the rational mind with a type of immediacy. And that's also why I think taste, of course, is, is, is such a profound image of that because, you know, to hear about honey or to hear about some strange food in a distant land uh, is one thing. But it is a completely different thing to taste it yourself. Yes. I mean, the taste of the word honey is far from the word honey. Yes. And anyone who's been hungry and has said the word bread knows that it does not sure. feel the same on your tongue as tasting bread. So, and I think also this is really interesting within the more general Islamic tradition because there was this tension uh, between the legal theorists, the, the jurisprudence, and the, the people of Tesowaf, of Su the Sufis, because essentially what the Sufis are doing is they're claiming a, a higher, more immediate knowledge yes. that, that supersedes the legal yes. thing. And I mean, one example from Ibn Arabi, which is interesting, for instance, is uh, some of the hadith, like the hadith of the hidden treasure, that yes. that the hadith Qudsi where the divine uh, first person speaks on the tongue of the beloved prophet وسلم, and says, I was a hidden treasure that loved to be known. And so I created that this love and knowledge is yes. the reason for which existence manifests. And uh, particularly, of course, human consciousness the, as the potential knowers yes. and lovers. But what's interesting is that uh, that, Hadith, it doesn't have outwardly a very strong uh, senate uh, uh, as far yes. as that can be verified because the Hadith science, as you know, is, is very uh, specific. Who yes. are the narrators? We want to ver verify what the Prophet yes. said or not. And Ibn Arabi, and he's not the only one amongst the Sufis that have said this, he said, well, that's fine. It may not have a strong chain of transmission, but I've verified it through Kashf. Yes. Through unveiling, I know yes. that this is a reality that the Prophet said. Yes. And so, you know, those that took issues with the Sufis from the, amongst the, the more exoteric legal scholars, it made them uncomfortable that these Sufis are claiming a superior knowledge, a, a, a private knowledge, a personal uh, relationship with God, which can cause them to cast doubt or at least critique the, uh, the outward traditional scholars and claim yes. a kind of superiority to them. So I'm interested uh, what Ibn Arabi has to say about Dhok and Kashf and, and any of those uh, questions that might come up. I mean, Sheikh Al-Akbar is, in, if, if, you know, if there is anything he's explicit about, one, he explicitly admonishes the use of the rational mind. Um, aql, and he relates Aql to Iqal. Um, which is a leash mm -hmm. um, that it, it and he relates this leash of aql to aqidah ironically mm -hmm. theology because he says aqidah is a uqda or a knot which you tie on God so the theologies of people they delimit they bound God and he relies upon a hadith in Sahih Muslim actually where uh, the Prophet ﷺ said that on the Day of Judgment, God will appear according to the forms of the creeds of all the people. And the, each community will deny him in those forms that they don't know, and they will affirm only the form that they know. Sheikh Al-Akbar offers his commentary. He says, and behind all of these people 
the Arifun, the Gnostics are standing and affirming every form oh, that God is appearing in. Um, this, and, and of course, this is, he's, he's, he's criticizing epistemes or tools of knowledge here. He also criticizes theological schools like the Ash'aris. For example, he says, I don't understand why the Ash'aris like to interpret the sitting of God on the throne. It is as if their sitting is the root and his sitting is the metaphor, when in reality it's the other way around. Why don't you say he's the one who really sits on the throne and you're sitting on the chair is a metaphor of that. So what, So the question here becomes, okay, so yes, Sheikh al-Akbar, first of all, Sheikh al-Akbar is a mujtahid. He has reached the epitome of law. He has reached the epitome of hadith. He has reached the epitome of theology by testimony of those scholars around him. Um, but for him, the fact that you go through that and eventually reach cash, unveiling and taste, means that that is the highest destination that you're actually trying to reach. Now, there is a subtlety here that I think we need to sort of touch upon in order to appreciate why Sheikh al-Akbar is... Um, is, 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 is so critical of those, of those methods. Because the cosmology that he believes in is in many ways different than what many theologians of his time period believe and what many Muslims today believe. So one, uh, Professor Chidik makes the point in his book, uh, Divine Love, um, a literature on Islamic poetry on love, that, look, most people before pre-modern pre -modern times, most Muslims were not literate in the sense of reading and writing. Mm -hmm. And there, most of them were either farmers or even those that lived in the big cities like Baghdad or Cairo, they could not afford to go attend the, 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 the gatherings of the scholars. Like... Uh, Imam Ghazali and, and, and Razi, Fakhruddin Razi, and these people. So what, did, what was the, the way in which these people believed in God? He says they memorized the poetry of Rumi. They memorized the poetry of Hafiz. They memorized the poetry of Saadi. And what they would do is as they're working, they're just reciting this day in and day out, and it's sacralizing. It's transforming a mundane act like harvesting or, or planting the seed into something that is spiritual. Why, why, why I'm saying this is because in pre-modern times, we had the laity most probably adhering to a unitive cosmology, like Sheikh al-Akbar believes in. Whereas today, many Muslims have sort of adhered to the scholarly paradigm, which is not a unitive. I mean, Sheikh al-Akbar's cosmology is Neoplatonist. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that he followed the Greek thought, mm -hmm. but we're saying that Greek thought was traditional. Mm -hmm. Greek thought Plato was traditional. That's why Sheikh Al-Akbar calls Plato Ilahi. Mm -hmm. He calls him Plato the Divine. He actually criticizes Muslim philosophers like Farabi and Al-Kindi, but Plato he loves. Sheikh Al-Akbar is very clear in the Futuhat. The reason is because for him, this unit of cosmology where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God, the divine essence is the root um, of, and everything else in the universe is a projection of that. It's a meta, 
it's an intimation of that, an intimate imitation of the divine root. That is a traditional way of belief. Um, the way of the scholars was dialectical, which Sheikh Akbar did not like that. Um, he, 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 was, he was of the opinion, like, if you doubt anything that we are saying, then empty your heart and sit at the door of dhikr. And you will see that what I'm saying is the truth. And he says this bluntly in the Futuhat, in the beginning even of the Futuhat. Um, so his criticism against the theologians, um, in terms of like the Ash'ari school, his criticism against the scholars of Hadith, in terms of what you mentioned about uh, criticizing uh, Hadith that are absolutely clear for, for, for awliya, for, for saints. His criticism against legal scholars emerges from this point, that his cosmology, um, it was so different. What he actually believed about the universe. I mean, if I were to say it another way, Sheikh Al-Akbar and all, all saints, they enchant the universe. Yes. They view the universe as an enchanted wonderland mm -hmm. of things that are happening, coming from a spiritual root. This is how he's able so seamlessly to transition from law to the spiritual world. Theologians, by token of the fact that they're relying upon aql, they cannot enchant the universe. They have to separate it into a realm of good and a realm of um, things that you simply cannot know about or uh, 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 of good and evil and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, that has also become the common paradigm today. Which is why you find artists so attracted to Sheikh Al-Akbar. Yes. Because artists know intuitively that that is the way of reality. That this is actually how reality functions. If, if you are someone who has had a creative inspiration and who has been in a creative state, you know that it's not what the theologians are talking about. Mm -hmm. You know very well that it's Rumi and Ibn Arabi. Mm -hmm. They're there. Yeah, I love what you're saying. And actually, subhanAllah, I thought about that because, you know, I read Ibn al-Arabi very early on. In fact, that was kind of my door into Islam. That was the, okay, if this is Islam, I'm in, you know? Yes. And, so, <laughs> um, and, you know, one thing that he says that's so beautiful is he talks about these, you mentioned like the sitting on the throne and these things that could be seen as anthropomorphic, right? Uh, the, the, the hand of God and the, these things. Yeah. And <clears throat> I remember when I studied, you know, uh, the Ashari Aqidah on the commentary on these verses uh, with some of my teachers, and for instance, using the hand of God as, as one, they say, okay, the hand of God means the power of God. Yes. And I was like, for me, it's not that that's wrong, but it's that as a poet, I know that if the poet chooses to use the word hand, yes. they use the word hand because it's better than power. Yes. It's, it's, it's more accurate. And that's not, you can, the thing about a poem is that you can comment on it a whole book or a whole library, but you never exhaust the meaning of the poem. It yes. never equals the poem. The commentary is never as good as the poem. Yes. And so 
a poet knows that like, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't have to close the word in on this is right. what it has to mean this and only this. Exactly. And I think because it, it, it delimits, it's like you say, it's a knot yes. on that. And I, I love what you say about, uh, you know, these things. And I think I remember reading in Ibn al-Arabi a similar thing, like this idea of tenzi and tashbih too, that the, the, the common people are in a world that is infused with God. Yes. That yes. they are seeing, they're experiencing in a traditional pre-modern world, you know, and in, in, any of us have been in pre-modern cultures, they're, ex, ex, you know, each sunrise and each rain that falls on the crop and each, you know, uh, time that bread comes to their door. And it's, it's, they're experiencing this as the divine yes. presence. They're witnessing yes. it. And then, like you say, those that become kind of academic uh, minded, the, you, you know, in a sense, all you can really say through the rational mind is what God isn't. So you're kind of like, yes, you're pushing God kind of further away. And so what this world isn't like God, this world, this world is perishing. This world is finite. This world is limited. This world, yes. you know, and so I think what's beautiful about Ibn al-Arabi is he says, yes, both of these true are true, but it's, and it, it, you know, the huwa la huwa, like yes, it's, not la in, huwa. Yes. it's not in the, Hua and Lahua, it's in the tension that both at once. This yes. Kind of yes. Mysterious. Or, or he says, or he says the universe is in a constant inhalation, exhalation. Right. I, how beautiful is that? Yeah. You know, the, the, it's, it's going back inhalation and constantly expanding exhalation. And I think that's right because the rational mind, you know, things are opposites, right? Things yes. are either big or small. Things are either yeah. black or white. Things are either dark or light. Whereas I think this, this spiritual function and the creative function knows, yes. and that's the point of, of art, of poetry, is yes. to see the, the way that unlike things irrationally are alike, are yes. connected. Yes. And that's the metaphor is the essence of poetry, the essence of it, it, you know, art in a certain sense, is to show yes. the way that unlike things are actually not unlike. Yes. So it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the critique of the of the of the Ashari's, because Ibn Arabi, his he he points out in very simple ways the incoherence of this analogies. He says, "Wait a minute, how can how can you say one eye or multiple eyes equals one thing, which is knowledge? Mm -hmm. How can you say two hands equals one thing, power?" He says, if you're going to use your rational mind to equate things, then at least equate two hands with two things or multiple eyes with multiple things. He says, and he says, you're not going to get anywhere with that. So it's better to just say that he is the one who really sees and our eyes are the metaphor. Yes. He is the one who has a hand and our hands are the metaphor. Um, I just want to... Uh, I think this is a good transition point to talk about Sayyidina Isa and creativity. Um, because there is a point in the Futuhat, um, specifically in the Mi'raj narratives. Um, and this was such an opening for me personally as I was reading and I was, you know, comment, you know writing the dissertation. In the second heaven, where Sheikh Al-Akbar uh, says he met Sayyidina Isa and Sayyidina Yahya, he also stores in this heaven the Sayyidina John the Baptist, he stores in this heaven um, certain knowledges. 
So he says, this is the heaven of the knowledge of poetry. It is the heaven of the knowledge of poetic meters and oration. And what is known as the knowledge of simya. Simya is a very ancient term, which basically it's the, like the complements of kimya, alchemy, but it's causing change through the world through words. Mm. As opposed to chemical potions, simya is causing change through the world through actual words. Um, which, of course, Sheikh Akbar was a master of that. So, and then in another, so that sort of gives us half of the equation. In another place, Sheikh Al-Akbar says, he is trying to describe what, what is the significance of the birth of Sayyidina Isa. He says, look, on the one hand, Sayyidina Isa is the breath of God that he sent to Mary. Sayyidina Isa imitates the way he was created by breathing upon things and bringing them to life. Just as God gave his breath to Mary and Jesus came to life. But then Sheikh Al-Akbar says, he says, look, this idea of the breath and coming to life is like the human being. We have meanings that reside in our souls. And when we want to give expression to these meanings, we send out a breath mixed with sound. And we disconnect the breath at particular points where we form letters and then we combine the letters together to form words so he says we give life to the meanings that reside in our souls through speech jesus as an example of god giving expression to what resides in his soul but then the entire universe is actually isawi in this sense because the entire universe uh, Sheikh Al-Akbar described it as Kalimatullah. So he escapes the, 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 the criticism of theologians when, you know, because he says there's a difference between speech of God and the words of God. Yeah. He says the speech of God is eternal. That is what God revealed to Moses. He said, Musa alayhi salam and Sayyidina Musa fainted. Mm. He says if that had been what he revealed to Sayyidina Maryam, she would have fainted as well. But he did not reveal that to her. He revealed to her his words. In this case, Sayyidina Isa. And then he says, Jesus, alayhi salam, is from the aspect of his wholeness, he is one word. But in the example of his limbs, each one of his limbs is a word. So he is also a kalima and kalimat. Now what's the significance of this? What Sheikh al-Akbar is saying is that if you are tapping into your creativity, you are actually tapping into your Isawi essence into your Isawi aspect of yourself. Creativity, creative inspiration, art is actually an Isawi aspect of the human being. And since the human being is the microcosm, they contain within themselves the entire universe, which means we have seven heavens inside of us. And in these seven heavens, we have these seven prophets inside each one of us. So there is necessarily a second heaven inside each human being, and there is a Sayyidina Isa inside each human being, which means each human being is capable of art. Mm-hmm. But the need is to tap into that. Yeah. And yeah. that becomes sort of uh, really, really significant because the artistic process for Sheikh Al-Akbar is this dhawq that we're talking about. 
It's a liminal process. It is not a rational process. It is a journey from the physical world into the spiritual world while remaining in the physical world. Yes. You're enchanting the physical world to become windows into their spiritual roots. So beautiful. Akbar viewed everything in the universe as something to be decoded, like a puzzle. And if you're able to decode it, you will find a tajalli there, a manifestation of God. And that process is Isawiyah. It's a, it's a Christic process to receive creative inspiration, to give it its due, which is actually the adab, the etiquette that's required, um, as he's saying. MashaAllah. That's so real. And you just bring up a lot for me. If you think of traditional peoples, you know, we look at, for instance, uh, pictures of, you know, First Nations people of these lands or any peoples, whether it's Amazonian, uh, you know, indigenous people or, or African tribes people or Mongolian, you know, anyone traditionally. And you think of how beautiful their ornamentation and their decoration of themselves, yes, yes. the way they do their hair and the way that they, you know, adorn themselves and even paint their faces and the jewelry and the stones of and and also th the things they make the bowls they make or the 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 cups or the embroideries everything is like infused with beauty and even yes. to the point now where we would say like that's a waste of time it's going to take you 3 months to make this carpet or it's going to take you a week to make a bowl but for them it's like the creation of beauty in itself was was an end. Yes. It wasn't like, well, what can we sell this for? We could make a plastic one much cheaper, much quicker. It's like, this is a profoundly different way of being. It's yes. not just, a, it's, it's a whole orientation yes. towards things. And, you know, I always uh, say in my writing workshops that I do, because a lot of times modern people, they always say, well, I really would like to take your workshop or I'm interested or, or okay, I'm taking this. Or, okay, I'm going to share what I've written, but I want to say first, I'm not a poet. I'm not an artist. Right. And I always try to say gently, but I say like, I don't agree with that. Right. Because I've had the blessing of doing, uh, you know, workshops and, and teaching in schools with young children. And not a single young child has ever said, when I said, okay, draw a picture or write a poem, I can't, I'm not an artist. Right. It's, it's, it's alien to the, to the, you know, the fitra. Yes. But something happens later where yes. we start to say no. And it's really this rational mind comes in yes. and starts to self doubt and say, I'm not. And, you know, I, I even think of people that are not necessarily poets or as far as the sense that they're, they're writing poetry or they're producing art in what we, we might put it in a box. But, you know, I think of certain teachers of mine that have a profound speakers and orators. And, you know, the thing about beautiful speakers is that they make transparent their internal process and yes. how they think and how they see the world. And that's why a great orator, you can just sit back and you kind of get lost in the beauty of their mind, right? We talk yes. about a beautiful mind. Yes, yes. And, and you know, the thing about a, a beautiful speaker, they're connecting things that other people aren't connecting. And they're, they're thinking metaphor and they're seeing meaning. And the essence of art is it's, it's not actually 
producing a, a piece no. of art, but it's a way of seeing. It's, it's a, a way creative of process. It's a vantage point. It's a creative process. That's that you're in a sense in awe you're having. And this is why I really try to get people out of this idea. When I do workshops and things is like, don't think of a finished product. Don't think of, Oh, is this good or not? You have to, to really be um, an artist. You have to actually be the one who is witnessing what is being unveiled to you the kind of you're in awe of the creative process as it manifests to your heart yes your there you know your ego can't have anything to do with it oh this is from me it's like wow this is what is unfolding to me yes and 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 just being in a profound gratitude and receptivity that's really your whole job and you know i i really believe that like you say, and, and that's why artists have a type of voc. Artists have a type of knowledge. I think I may have even mentioned the last time we did a podcast that one of my uh, old friends who is an imam and previously was a jazz musician before his shahada, he mentioned, we talked about how many musicians become Muslim and how ironic it is that then then they're told music's haram and this type right. of nonsense. And, and I said, it's, it's interesting that this is the, the dean that draws the musicians in. He said, well, it's not actually that, uh, um, you know, surprising if you think about the fact that musicians are people that devote themselves to the unseen. Yes. To experience the unseen yes. and yes. being able to take part in the unseen and be a vessel for the unseen to manifest itself in the world for others. And... You know, there's a reality to this that artists and musicians, that they have a voke, they have a knowledge of the gift of the divine reality uh, showing things and exposing, yes. because any true artist knows, unless they're totally veiled by their ego and their ego has really uh, displaced them, is that this is a gift because you can't choose when you write your best poem. You can't choose when you paint your best painting or your whatever your medium is. You know that like this is a gift. And that's why you actually find with artists, especially ones that I think are mature, is that they actually have a profound humility and a relationship with the unseen. They may not all have the same aqidah, right. but they all know that there's something so much beyond just this little you know, individuated eye that we may often kind of close ourselves into, yes. but that we all, the boundaries of self can actually are permeable and can actually dissolve. And one can be this vast, you know, tap into this vast well of, of inspiration and creativity. And I think also that, that this can also be why a lot of artists that don't, aren't connected to, the spiritual path can in some way self-destruct, right? We yes, think about so yes. many musicians that, you yes. know, have, you know, such problems with drugs and alcohol and suicide. And it's so common yes. that it almost becomes a trope. And I think often it's because if you don't have a way to, to root or to understand or to get yourself out of the way, when this yes. power manifests to you yes. or through you, yes. that it can actually cause your ego to do some uh, very damaging things. Yes. And, I mean, touching just to sort of comment on everything that you've said, I believe that art that we see today is probably the last 
living vestige of an ancient way of being, of a tradition, and, and it's a wilaya. I mean, being an artist is a wilaya. And this is exactly why, as you said, artists who do not have a spiritual path self-destruct because they're channeling power from heavens and they're, they're trying to carry it. And it destroys them because of that. And, you know, the reason why, like you said, the creative process is actually the sort of the goal for these pre-modern um, traditional societies is because it's imitating the divine creative process. Um, because it's imitating the reason why God created to begin with, because he wants to express his artistry. So one of the sort of lingering questions with me is, was like, okay, if Jesus is the word of God, is he divine prose or divine poetry? And, and then I, it's, it's just so natural to me that he is a divine poem. Uh, Sayyidina Isa is a, is a perfect example of a divine poem. Uh, his mercifulness, um, or you can say he's like, he's like a hemistish in the poem of the Prophet Sallallahu um, He is these two verses in just a larger expression of love that's directed from God in a form of a poem towards a mirror of the Prophet Sallallahu where God is reflecting upon his own self. Um, and Sayyidina Isa is like the last two verses that God speaks before the Prophet Sallallahu appears in his physical form. Um, so the whole affair is sort of this artistry, this, this creative process, this art, the necessity of engaging it. And what you mentioned about, you know, uh, our community being burdened really with the poison of thinking that music is haram, is that if you want to find out the spiritual health of a community, see how they deal with art and artists. If they believe that artists should be doing things free of charge, if they believe that, um, and it's really almost an ism, I, I think it's almost a sin to ask an artist to do things for the sake of God, because um, God doesn't need to create. And yet he did it in order to show you something. And you want this artist who's giving you their heart and soul to do something for nothing in return. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it really shows kind of spiritually where we are as a community. And then if you want to be with the fuqara, the, 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 the ones who have relinquished themselves, be with the artist. Mm -hmm. Be with those who have appreciated the creative process in itself and have sort of, I mean, that's also realization that I came to recently after writing some things that it's actually not the finished, pro I mean, once you do a product, you have to sort of let it go so that it survives on its own and you just sort of reflect on where it came from mm -hmm. and the process of what people, where people receive inspiration from and how they translate that. Mm -hmm. These aha moments, right? Where they receive their aha moments and how they translate that. What makes them cry? What makes them laugh? What makes them, um, uh, what, what is their sort of what is the safe space of their consciousness mm -hmm. that they like to imagine themselves living in. Mm -hmm. um, for me, for example, it's nostalgia. For other people, it might be thinking about the future. For some other person, it might be food, whatever it is. But these types of reflections, that's where God appears the most. And that's the isolated process, I think. Yeah. 
MashaAllah, there's so much, and there's so much in Ibn al-Arabi that I think is really important for our time in the sense that one of the beautiful things about Ibn al-Arabi that really comes through for me is that he say he kind of affirms, he really emphasizes that there are levels. And I think that's so important because so many people are living on a very horizontal, even yes. like believers, a very yes. horizontal, right? Of this is right and this is wrong and this group is right and this group is wrong. And he has this beautiful way of saying like, everyone is right on some level, but that doesn't yes. mean it's the highest level. And yes. that really is really beautiful that everyone is worshiping God or every beloved is God it doesn't mean that they have the fullest vantage point of it. The yes. idol worshiper who is prostrating to the idol, they are actually worshiping their projection of yes. God. That yes. doesn't mean it's the full picture, yes. but to, to be able to see that. And I think that's really important. And that kind of brings me into a question that I really want, wanted to, to hear from you because uh, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. The importance of Sheikh Al-Akhbar in our time particularly, because mm -hmm. you'll find uh, among many of the great Sufis traditionally that, you know, Ibn al-Arabi, you know, they say like there's kind of like a before Ibn al-Arabi and after Ibn al-Arabi because no one influenced Islamic thought uh, as much as him, arguably, and yes. definitely Sufi thought. And that everyone, and the proof is that everyone after him is necessarily reacting to him in some yes. way. You, you yes. can't not deal with it. You know what I mean? You're, yes. you're either affirming or you may be critiquing or negating, but you know, this goes to show. But One second, I'm coming back. One second, just turn and go right on. Bismillah. Yes. But you do hear, you see in the writings of some of the great Sufis, a kind of um, caveat or a little bit of a warning about Ibn al-Arabi. Mm -hmm. You know, many of them will say, you know, Imam al-Haddad, for instance, says in the Book of Assistance, uh, to, he kind of warns at least novices, initial yes. seekers on the path, to stay away from these books. And he does affirm uh, that they're true. It's not that they're, but it's that, you know, there's a concern that you may uh, misunderstand them or in a sense, therefore, there's preliminary text before you yes. get to this reality. And I'm curious about this because um, I'll just share a little bit of my own thoughts about this is that in a traditional world where you have scholars, you have spiritual masters, you have Sufi uh, shiuch that are present and they're guiding disciples through the levels of self-realization mm -hmm. it does make sense to me to say like let's let's leave that until a certain point yes but i question whether we live in the same world as that in the sense that you know if, if especially for those that are educated and are going to you know just not even educated but just Im imbuing and taking in yes the modern and postmodern secular Western paradigms and the psychologized understanding of existence and the, you know, you know, done away with the Ptolemaic vision of the universe and, you know, these type of things that, and, and especially people that are educated and the better the school, the more different ideas and concepts that you're getting. And so I wonder, you know, this idea of protecting 
people from foreign ideas that may confuse them, it almost seems like those days are over. Like, how can you, how, how can we be protected? I mean, what, you know, with, with Wikipedia and with, you know, modernism and postmodernism and various uh, paradigms. So I'm just curious uh, what you think. I'm sure you have thought about that. Ibn Arabi for our times. I think, so I'll mention three small stories of three different people that I've asked about reading Sheikh Al-Akbar. First, I asked Habib Omar directly when I was in Tareem, because I know what the Ba'alawis say about reading Ibn Arabi. And I told him very bluntly, I said, Habib, you know, I had a gap in my heart and nobody filled it except Sheikh Al-Akbar. And his answer to me was very simple. He was like, read him, and if you come across anything that contradicts your mind, suspend your mind. That was a simple answer. And he's basically telling me, approach him like an artist. Don't approach him like a theologian. Don't approach him like a rational thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, Maulana Sheikh Hisham Qabbani, in one of his um, uh, 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 teachings, he says the only person who can understand Ibn Arabi is a poet. Mm-hmm. He didn't say a scholar. He didn't say a theologian. He says, you need to be a poet to understand Ibn Arabi. Um, the third is Sayyid Hussein Nasr. I met him at the University of Michigan and I asked him this exact question you asked me. I said, um, you know, we have a problem in our Muslim community of people saying that you cannot read Ibn Arabi, you cannot understand Ibn Arabi, you have to study for 20 years in order to read Ibn Arabi. Um, the academics are obsessed with him. What do you think his usefulness is for people? Because I feel that he's useful. I feel that people need him. He said, his answer was so beautiful. He said, look, when people see a mountain, what attracts them to the mountain is the peak. Only if they're attracted by the peak will they force themselves to go through the arduous journey of climbing from the base. So what occurred to me after hearing all of that is that one, Sheikh Al-Akbar represents a really a universal type of religious knowledge that is common in all faith traditions. That is why you have comparative works between Sheikh Al-Akbar and Meister Eckhart, for example, between um, Sheikh Al-Akbar and Maimonides, for example, because he represents- Shankara and Sheikh Al-Akbar, yes, 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 he represents a peak of being which brings me to then how would i describe what first i mean what is the reason that muslim scholars today um and almost always it's never a welly who will say something like this it's always a, a a legal scholar or a theologian who will say something like this it's because they view sheikh al-akbar like a scholarly religious text which means that they're trying to place him within a curriculum. But people are not in need of reading Sheikh Al-Akbar only to become scholars. We are in need of reading him to become human beings. So for that, there is no limiting on who can understand him. You can be a scholar and you can read Ibn Arabi for 30 years and you can read him after 30 years and you still won't understand anything he's saying. Mm And you can be an artist off the street, filled with tattoos, drunk and high on drugs, and you read Ibn Arabi and it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. First of all, 
there is the time period. I mean, there is there is the dispositions of people. Legal scholars, and actually when I was in Tarim, I remember one scholar uh, who was teacher who was very humble to say this very bluntly is uh, Sheikh Amar Khatib, who teaches fiqh at uh, Dar al-Mustafa. Mm -hmm. He said, I could pick up hadith and fiqh just like that. He said, tasawwuf, I could never understand it. He said that with his own terms. So he, so there are people that have different dispositions, yeah. and we need to understand that. I mean, there are people who just will never, I'm one of those people, I could just never read fiqh books. I could never find them enjoyable. I could never find the signs of Adl and Tajrih of, uh, of Hadith scholars enjoyable. But give me Ibn Arabi, and I used to sit in the back of Dar al-Mustafa while the scholars are teaching fiqh and I'm reading Fusus al-Hikam. Because I'm just in my little zone and that's what I find enjoyable. But, like you mentioned, there is also a different time period. And actually, I want to sort of emphasize the metaphysics of this time period. We are at a time period when, as Professor Chidik says, the world is transitioning into the unseen. And transitioning into the unseen means that the physical laws of the world are being lifted. And a different metaphysical rules are coming into place. And if you don't want to be swept up by the ocean, you have to learn how to swim. And people need, because once those veils are lifted, in whichever way is going to be, mm -hmm. and people witness this deluge of the unseen, if they do not have love for the unseen, um, it's going to be frightening. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. not, I, I, and it's a nightmare not because it's, it's actually scary. It's a nightmare because it's going to overwhelm with its beauty. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sheikh Al-Akbar talks about the Jalal of Jamal. That God can appear to you in a form so beautiful that it actually makes you delirious no, no, no. and annihilates you. No. And he actually says God never appears to the world to the world in his uh, absolute jalal. Right. He kept that for himself. He only appears to the world in either Jamal or Jalalul Jamal, in beauty or the majesty of beauty. But that beauty can destroy you. Yes. And it's, it's, a, it's, you know, for Sheikh Al-Akbar is you have to have a love for that spiritual realm, a love. I mean, people, when they think about Akhirah, they think about something in the future. But we're talking about Akhirah as in a different state of being here and now. Mm -hmm. And it's not leaving the world. It's enchanting the world. Yes. It's transforming the world into a wonderland. Um, and again, we're back at artists because these are the people who are really able to do that. They're living that. Um, they're living that day in and day out. So yes, I agree with you. We are at a different time period and we are in need of opening Sheikh Al-Akbar for people. Perhaps the one thing that needs to be made easy is the technical terminology. Yes. Um, but other than that, this I mean, I've, taught, I've spoken to Buddhists and they just get Ibn Arabi just like that. They're like, oh yeah, we experience this every day. Mm -hmm. So we need to open Sheikh Al-Akbar for people because people, when they read him, they know that this is what they need. Yeah. MashaAllah. Yeah, there's so much we could do. And I think, you know, inshallah, we, we got to have you uh, back on be just because there's so, so many 
uh, directions we could go. I want you to be able to at least mention the book that you recently put out and also um, other places people could connect with your work. But there was one question that I, that I had written down that came up when we were talking and that's if you came across um, any remarks that stuck out that Sheikh Al-Akbar mentioned about uh, the other prophets, because we know in the Quran there's a number of prophets mentioned, but there's also this understanding that uh, there were many others, that there's 124,000 yeah. different narrations. And, um, you know, I've just thought about that if, if you found that Sheikh Al-Akbar mentions, because, of course, in the Fusus Al-Hikam, he, he focuses on these Quranic prophets. But if uh, you came across any of his remarks uh, about extra Quranic prophets, you could say. So one of the interesting things about the Fusus is the chapter immediately preceding the Prophet Sallallahu is regarding a figure named Khalid, mm. who is actually not a prophet. Mm. And Sheikh Al-Akbar, um, as is vintage Ibn Arabi, we're sort of left bewildered as to why he includes this. And I think the reason he includes it is the same reason he likes to discuss all the prophets is because they represent archetypes within the Muhammadan reality, within the reality of the Prophet The story of this figure Khalid is that he was a righteous person who lived in the Fatra, in the period between Sayyidina Isa and between the Prophet and he was a wali, a saint who knew that he was going to die beforehand. And he told his family that once you bury me in the ground, wait for a certain period of time and then come and open my grave. And when you open my grave, you will see me standing praying in my grave. And then you will believe in the unseen. And Sheikh Al-Akbar, um, of course, he says so much. But the gist of this story is that his family did not follow his advice and so he remained dead hmm. and you know it's you begin to wonder what is the point of this story why is he saying this and i think he's actually sort of addressing this 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 unwillingness to trust in the spiritual realm um that becomes sort of the the, the archetype of Khalid. of course I should also mention that these archetypes that Ibn Arabi deduces from the figures of the prophets are intimately related to their names. Sheikh al-Akbar, perhaps more than any other Sufi master throughout Islamic history, and more than any other author that I've come across, he is so masterful in his dealing with language and the way he, what I call mystical etymology, he infuses the way that letters sound and the way that words sound. So, for example, you mentioned that there is no relationship necessarily between the word honey and the taste of honey. Sheikh mm -hmm. al-Akbar says in Arabic there is. Mm -hmm. There is an intimate relationship between the word asal, the way that word sounds, and the taste of honey. Mm -hmm. So the name Khalid for Sheikh al-Akbar has to do with khulud or immortality which has to do with the archetype of this figure, that he lived an eternal life, his family had a chance to experience that, to experience that miracle, but they denied themselves this, this ability. Um, in terms of the Futuhat, we really don't get much discussion of extra-Quranic prophets, except 
Um, discussion about awliya, rankings of saints, where Sheikh Al-Akbar discusses saints on the footsteps of prophets. In terms of Sayyidina Isa specifically, he says at every age there has to be someone like Sayyidina Isa, born of a mother without a father, because this person has to fulfill a role in the universe of being a liminal being between the realm of bodies and spirits. And of course, in one of his other works, he talks about hundreds of awliya, his teachers, two, three of whom are women, um, very powerful women, um, Fatima bint Ibn al-Muthanna, whom Shaykh al-Akbar describes as someone who had the Fatiha, Surah Fatiha, as her servant. Um, whenever this waliya needed a task, she would simply recite Surah Fatiha, and Surah Fatiha would come as a human being um, and fulfill the task, fulfill the need of this waliya. Another waliya is Shams Umul Fuqara. Uh, her name's the son, the mother of the, of, the, of the poor ones, who he calls one of the sighing saints. She used to sigh, and whenever she sighs, it's contagious. Everybody around her will sigh. And he says that's a sign of divine communication. So Sheikh Al-Akbar says, Awliya Allah, they have specific, specific behaviors, mm -hmm. physical mannerisms. Whenever they do that, know that they're receiving divine communication, and it's a contagious behavior. So we hear stories even today about awliya who are crying saints. When people come and visit them, they start crying. Everybody around them starts to cry. And then they don't have to say a word. They've received divine communication. They've given it to everybody. So there isn't really exo-Quranic prophets. There is an enchanting of what we know about these prophets. Mm -hmm. He gives them extra-Quranic roles. Mm -hmm. Or he uses the Quran in order to deduce more roles than people than people can 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 know for them. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Inshallah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so many. I mean, the thing about Sheikh Al Akbar is there's literally it's inexhaustible the commentary that we could give, and hopefully we can maybe uh, do other podcasts where we dive into other topics related to this. But just in closing, and thank you for your generosity of your time. And uh, again, congratulations on, you. you know, your PhD and defending your dissertation and completion. Um, but yeah, let people know where they can uh, stay connected to you. And I know you, you have some kind of creative endeavors and some books that have come out. Maybe you could just uh, speak about that briefly uh, as we close. Inshallah, Jazakumullah khair. It's, it's always an honor to speak with you. I mean, we're, we're, you know, outside this podcast, we're brothers and friends and I've known you for a very long, long time. I've seen you in more dreams than I can count about things ranging from the Prophet to the mountain of Qaf. Um, so we are definitely spirits, you know, befriended one another before this world. Um, but yeah, Alhamdulillah, I just published my uh, second book, uh, which is an autobiography. Um, and it's called The Soup of Nostalgia. It's going to be a trilogy, actually. It's going to be three volumes. Um, the first volume is called... This, the, the, all three volumes are going to be The Soup of Nostalgia. The subtitle for this one is A Childhood Between Rivers and Mountains. And this is a book that began as... Uh, with an intention to write an article about Sufism. What is Sufism? What is the reality? Specifically, Akbarian Sufism. And I found myself writing about myself writing about my life. My childhood as someone who was born in Iraq and lived through the first Gulf War and then migrated to Jordan. And I lived in Jordan for six years and then migrated to the United States in 98. That childhood was sort of something that I had not come face to face with. I had not 
And because of the religious landscape of the Muslim community in America, we're not taught that things like video games and music and movies can be things that shape your religious or your journey to God. So my Sheikh, my Sheikh Hisham Qabani sort of put me spiritually on this road where I had to come face to face with that and through Sheikh Al-Akbar to sort of enchant, to find the significance in my life. But what was most unique about this work is I discovered that I remember very little human interactions. I remember very little about conversations I've had with people. And it turns out that this book was actually a biography of places, of architecture. And I'm constantly enchanting. I'm speaking on behalf of buildings and homes and apartments that could not speak for their own selves. And I'm not speaking about them in the way they existed in the past or the way they exist now, because many of them have been destroyed, but actually the way they exist in my imagination. So it's also sort of a personal story about how separation from some type of beloved, either a land or a past or something like that, how as that separation increases, your imagination's embellishment increases. And the way that your imagination sort of enchants those places, how it constructs connections between uh, uh, two apartments that live, that, you know, were in different countries, thousands of miles away. Um, and then all of a sudden, 30 years later, you're trying to revisit these memories um, and you're trying to connect with them on a level that you have a different understanding now, a different child. So it's, it's also a sense of closure. But I think what makes the story unique is that it's actually... There are human interactions, but it's mostly focusing on these architectural places. Um, residences between Iraq and Jordan, um, movies that I've seen, people that I've visited, neighborhoods that I've lived in, how they exist now. And one thing I'll mention, which is sort of a nice reflection I had about the spirituality of places. I think you'll appreciate this. I realized as I was writing the book that there is a particular archetypal architecture that keeps reoccurring in my life and that is a marble courtyard i noticed that in my childhood in my travels throughout my life i keep visiting a place which is a large courtyard made of white marble and i began to wonder what is the significance of that and then i realized there was a movie with ben affleck a few years back where he was this engineer and he discovered uh he created this machine that was able to show him the future but then they had to erase his memory and he became a fugitive and when he woke up he discovered that his previous self had placed clues for himself when his memory gets erased so he can find out what's going on so i began to think man what if our spirit before it was sent down to earth left these clues like in your body you're not going to remember who you are in the spiritual world. So as your spirit, I'm going to leave you these clues in the physical world mm -hmm. so that you can find your way back home. Right. So maybe for me, a white courtyard of marble relates to some place that I visited in the spiritual world. Mm. Um, and that's just, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's this attempt to really make connections where none exist which is something that academics do not like at all, but it's something that artists are very good at. 
making connections where none exist. So this is sort of my journey now um, with writing. I'm also avidly learning the oud, the musical instrument, and that, that's really a podcast by itself about the power of music and relating to traditional culture and heritage. But I'll just say that aside from these two books, my first book, Mystical Musics of a Contemporary Dervish, um, which is a collection of essays about Ibn Arabi and poetic reflections. And then the second book, The Soup of Nostalgia. I also have um, a social media page on Facebook and Instagram called Nostalgic Remembrance, um, Art and Memoirs, where I am every day, I basically just listen um, to whatever comes and I just write something, I translate it to Arabic and then I associate it with a picture. Um, from um, some artists that, that sort of fits together. And I'm also sharing daily quotes from the Soup of Nostalgia. And as any artist knows, as you know very well, you don't know what the road holds ahead. You just listen, convey, and move on. Mm. MashaAllah. Tabarakallah. Allah bless you and all your Allah endeavors. You. And may Allah continue to inspire you. Ameen. And, uh, fill you with light and goodness I mean, I mean. all right my brother it's really good to speak with you and Allah uh, bless you habib look forward to speaking soon inshallah I mean.